This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. You're invited to join us at our worship assemblies each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. We read about the miracles of Jesus. We read about the wonderful things in he, that he did. And in the scriptures, it refers to those things as signs, miracles, and wonders. And it's wonderful to read about those things. And, and I picture myself being there or seeing those things. And we ponder those things often. Today we're going to look at miracles that God did to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. And so they're not radically different, but one of the key things is Jesus is not performing these miracles. They're being done, we might say, to him. They're not being done to signify to the people that were there that they could see that this individual is different and that this this thing that's taking place uh, the birth the death and the resurrection is very very different and so not only did Jesus live the most unique life the event that of his resurrection is the greatest event of eternity and so it's appropriate that there were things that were done that were out of normal but we kind of get used to Jesus doing those things. <clears throat> In the book of Malachi chapter 4, the very last few verses of the Old Testament, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. These are the last words of prophecy. And after these words, there's about 400 years of no prophets, no word from God. And the people were used to having prophets. The people of Israel were used to and accustomed to prophets guiding them and giving them word from God. And so they get this word that there's Elijah going to come. Well, Elijah was already gone. Elijah's not around anymore. And so he gives a prophecy that's going to affect and be there before the day of the Lord. And so the first couple of things we're going to look at are the biological miracles at his birth. And that has to do with Elizabeth and Mary. Now when we talk about biological things, we're talking about things that were pertaining to the body. And so Jesus healed a lot of people. And as he walked on the earth, there were a lot of people that he helped with their health blindness or lameness or some other type of disease they may have had these are a little different category we're talking about conception is what we're talking about and conception can really be a challenge for a lot of people and there are a lot of people and the bible uses the term as barren a woman's barren she cannot conceive and have children and there's a number of people within pages of scripture a number of ladies who was barren so I want you to notice with me in the book of Luke, chapter 1, beginning verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. They had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both 
were now well stricken in years. And so not only is this woman barren, but now she's old. And if you'll forgive me, it'd be kind of like grandmom having a child. We don't have that expectation because you're too old. There's just a time of life for women to give birth to children, and that's when they're young. And they go through the change of life, and when that happens, they're not going to have any more children because those days are gone. And this is the situation with Elizabeth. Not only was she too old, she's, she couldn't have had them when she was young. And this is the biological situation of this woman. The book of Luke chapter 1 verse 11, there appeared unto him, this is Elizabeth's husband, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. So this goes back all the way to the prophecy of Malachi. He's going to turn the hearts of the people. And so John is a child of prophecy. He's a special individual. He shouldn't have been born, but he was born because God willed it. As evidence, prepare the way of Jesus. Verse 16, many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now listen carefully to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He is going to blaze the trail for Jesus. That's his job. A miracle child. Never should have been born. And yet he was. And this is going to be his job. Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, my wife stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. Now, I don't know a whole lot about all the archangels. I know Michael and I know Gabriel. There are probably some others. I don't know their names. But I know Gabriel and I know Michael. So I want you to notice and take note of that name. That stand in the presence of God, I am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. And so here's Zacharias. Can't believe it. I'm married to an old lady now. And we wanted a child, but we're too old. Furthermore, she's barren at the time. How am I going to know? He said, you're not going to be able to talk. And if you'll take the time to read, whenever the child is born, he said, his name's John. Because Gabriel told him what to name the child. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, 
Thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Who said all this? Gabriel. He, he seems to be the angel of the stork. He's going to come and tell you you're going to have a baby. That's kind of been his job. He comes to the young lady who's not only not pregnant, not married, don't have a husband, never been with a man. Now you want to take it up a notch from old and barren, how about young and a virgin? And these are the miracles that are done to show us that Jesus is really different. That Jesus is not the same as all the others. Who knows how many millions and billions of children have been born on this earth. And I seen a picture of one the other day had six fingers on the hand. I thought, wouldn't that be nice? Then I got thinking, well, maybe not. You probably couldn't buy a pair of gloves if you wanted to. Reckon how many children are born with six fingers? Not very many. Reckon how many are born to a virgin? I can tell you that, one. One. Now, Abraham and Sarah had a child in their old age, and she was barren. And so did Elizabeth and Zechariah, but there was one child born of a virgin. Verse 29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Feel not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt, be, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shalt bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. This, these are miracles. These are not things Jesus did. These are things God did. And these people were well known. And this was plainly seen. This was a very unique birth. And we could easily say today impossible. Absolutely impossible. That these two things should be. Furthermore impossible that they should be cousins. And if you want to put on top of that the prophecy of God. That these things would be. And so we have these two miracles at the beginning in the conception. Okay let's move on. We've got a couple celestial miracles that surround Jesus. Celestial in the sense of, of the sky or the heavens. And we're talking about the stars specifically on these two. So we have a star that appears at the birth of Jesus. And then we have darkness at his death. Which seems actually very fitting when you think about that. That the light of God had come into the world. And, and that, 
the dark light had gone out in a sense. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now I don't know if you're familiar with this, but we don't look at stars so much today the way they did in those days we look at the tv or we look at our phone and those kinds of things but in the old times they watched the stars in fact they counted the stars in about 1000 a.d there was a muslim man who took and counted what he believed was a thousand visible stars and he made a catalog later on there was a fellow named talimi the great who cataloged stars he believed there were about 1500 all this was going on before there was even a telescope. And so they watched the stars, they mapped the stars, and they looked at the constellation, and these wise men come and say, we've seen the star, there's an unusual star, a different star, one that doesn't fit, one that doesn't belong, it's not normally there, you see. He says, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when she shall have found him bring, him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. Not a normal star. I don't know if you ever looked up and saw a star and said, I'll just follow it. It's right here close. I never felt that way. Not too long ago, I was up in Seattle, and the space station come over, and one of the members of the church, he said, hey, I don't know if you're interested, but he said, the space station's going to go over, you'll be able to see it. And I said, well, I, I can't imagine being able to see that. It's way out there. And so we walked outside, and we're standing there like a bunch of goofballs looking up the sky, and here in a minute, there it comes. He said, there it is. And you could tell it's different. It just moved in a way that it wasn't an airplane. You, just, you could tell that. These men saw something that was different, and they saw this star. They were happy about it, and it led them, as it were, to Jesus, these wise men. It come and stood where they were, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Let's talk about that for just a minute. John chapter 1 Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness. And the darkness comprehendeth it not. What came into the world? What did the star usher in? The light of the world. Well, not the sun. We're not talking about a flashlight or LED. We're talking about life. Because when Jesus came to the world, he brought life. In a world that was full of death, 
a world full of sin and corruption. He brought an opportunity for salvation. And that's why they rejoiced. And as he lived his life, he spread the light. And he gave life. To those who were sick, he gave healing. To those who were dead, he raised to life. He was a giver of life and a giver of health. And he was that kind of a person in the world. He had no sin at all in him. And it seems a shame to think that someone would try to kill that man and destroy that light. That's what they did. And so a star, a wonderful star, ushered him in at his birth and announced this great light had come into the world. But you know, he began to say that he would be killed and raised the third day. He began to prepare his disciples that he would be put to death. He began to help them to be prepared for that day and in time that day came and he was betrayed to Judas. And they came and arrested him and tried him and mocked him. They beat him and they whipped him and they put him to death. In the book of Matthew 27 and verse 45 from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. I asked one of the preachers in Nigeria what time they had church. They said, nine o'clock. We said, how come nine o'clock? They said, well, you're supposed to meet at the ninth hour. I said, well, <laughs> the ninth hour is about six o'clock in the evening. That's not nine in the morning. They didn't understand how they looked at time in the Bible. The sixth hour is about noon. See, about noon. It's the sixth hour from dawn is the idea. So from noon till three o'clock, there's darkness. <clears throat> Whenever we built our house, Dad says, you ain't putting enough light in your house. I said, oh, it's going to be plenty. Well, I was wrong. We've got old and our eyes ain't not so good and we wished we'd put more light. But you know what? We don't have to have those lights during the day because it's pretty bright. We could turn these lights off right here and we'd be fine. It's almost noon because the sun's out. And even on a cloudy day, you don't turn on your headlights on your car or you don't get out your phone and turn on your light to walk outside because there's light. But I want you to know something. It went dark this day, and it was dark all over. And it was unnatural. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood by there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. The darkness. You know, a lot of folks have researched this and... It's not that hard of a thing, I guess, if you're into the celestial. If you're an astronomer, you can pretty much tell when these eclipses will be. 
because they kind of happen like clockwork. That's one of those things God's done. And they've tracked all that and done the math, and it's not an eclipse. You know, we had eclipse a few years ago, and I went out and looked at it through a welding helmet lens. There's not an eclipse where it just gets dark. And this is darkness. Not a little bit, not dimness. This is darkness. Luke chapter 23 verse 44. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth. You know, I noticed on the news the other day there's going to be an eclipse and I got to looking at where it was going to be and we're kind of going to be on the edge of it. It won't even cover the whole United States. I'll tell you, this was not an eclipse. This was darkness because God shut out the light. Because the light of the world had died. The light of men had died from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. There's darkness because this is different, a different life. A unique death. An innocent man took the sin of the world. Certainly was a dark time. He says in verse 45, the sun was darkened. Not only was the whole earth dark for three hours, but even the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in twain or rent into the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So Jesus, at his death, is shrouded in darkness. And at his birth, he's brought forth by the light of a star. Physical miracles at his death. We have a couple. The veil of the temple being torn. Let's continue in this time in Mark. Jesus on the cross cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. You ever try to do like Hulk Hogan and rip your t-shirt off? Probably girls never done that. I always thought that was cool. Not the easiest thing to do. Hulk Hogan pretty strong. What is a veil? Well basically it's a curtain. Now, the temple was a pretty large place, and the veil divided the temple into two areas. One was called the holy place, and then in the back there was called the holiest of all. And the veil divided those two like a curtain. It hung, and that was its job. I want to read to you. I did a little research on this. 300 priests... We're told to draw the veil of the temple aside. For it is taught that Rabbi Shimon ben Gamaliel declared in the name of Rabbi Shimon the Sagan. So these guys are, are historians of the Jews. The thickness of the veil was a handbreadth. Okay, four inches. I don't know, Monty, you hold up your hand, might be five, he's a bigger hand. Four inches thick. It was woven of 72 cords. Each cord consisted of 24 strands. This, this mat, this thing's woven out of paracord or paracord on steroids. It was 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. 82 myriads of damsels worked at it. 
And two such veils were made every year. When it became soiled, it took 300 priests to immerse it and cleanse it. This, this is not a curtain. This is a massive, I don't know what you call it. It's not carpet. It's much heavier. Four inches thick, 60 feet by 30 feet is enormous. Took 300 men to pull it aside. And when Jesus died, it's torn in two. Rent from top to bottom. You see. And it wasn't old. It wasn't, it wasn't sitting there because it's 150 years old. They made two every year. <clears throat> Hebrews 9 verse 7. This passage in Hebrews describes Jesus entering in to the holiest of all and making a wave. And he, he's talking about the end of the law of Moses and the end of the sacrifice of animals. And he's describing a new law, the law of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus. And he's describing this to us by just using the ripping of the veil. Into the second, this was the holiest of all, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Now he's describing this old law, how it functioned, the tenets of that old law. There's going to come a time of change, and Jesus was going to usher in that change. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. I want to tell you why the veil was rent in twain, because Jesus went into that holiest of all, and he offered his own blood. He tore down the wall that separates Jew and Gentile. He tore down the law of Moses. And he ushered in his own law, the law of Christ, with his own blood. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. He offered himself an eternal sacrifice to where we don't need a holiest of all. We don't need priests. We don't need animal sacrifices. We don't need that blood. We have his blood. We don't need some temple in Jerusalem. We have the church of the living God. And Jesus the high priest. And he went in there and he ripped that veil at his death because a new way was made. The next physical miracle is at his resurrection which is the stone being 
rolled away. And after Jesus died, he was taken by Joseph Arimathea. And the ladies went with him and they wrapped his body in linen and they covered him in spices and they prepared his body and they put him in a tomb. Now those tombs were carved out in rocks. Some of them were natural caves. A lot of them were carved out of rocks. And this was something that a wealthy individual would have because they were very costly. And typically what they did was in constructing the tomb, the door was made out of a giant stone that was carved so that it was like a big old giant disc. And it might be two or three feet thick and five or six feet tall. And it was rolled into a slot where gravity just kept it closed. And it was one of those things. It was really difficult to move it and open. It took several people to roll this stone because of its great weight. Mark 16 verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, so that's Saturday... Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. So they've come back to put some more of these spices on the body of Jesus. And very early in the morning, though this is Sunday, the first day of the week they come to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? It's closed. And evidently too heavy for these ladies to do. Now Bronwyn picked up a big old bag of mulch. So she, her, a couple of Bronwyns might have done it. I don't know. But evidently too heavy for these gals. Verse 4. When they looked they saw the stone was rolled away. For it was very great. Now. I want to add a little bit to this. John 20 verse 5. Peter, this is he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes, yet he went not in. So I just want you to think for a minute. Peter comes to the tomb and he stoops down to look in. And so the opening is very low. The stone is rolled down into a very low place so here's a a little bit of what I've learned about these stones they're typically from a half to one and a half tons so this stone could have weighed 3,000 pounds they're sealed it was guarded at least the stone of Jesus it was immense to open the tomb the stone had to be rolled uphill and typically they had a track in Matthew 28 verse 2 though he says for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and set on it. All right. So God sent his angel to open this tomb. God sent an angel for people to see that Jesus was not there. I want to tell you something about the stone. Jesus was resurrected before the stone. He came out of the ground before the stone was rolled away. The angel only opened it so they could see that the grave was empty. And it's still empty today. Okay, we'll wind this up. Terrestrial miracles. There's a couple of earthquakes I want you to take note of. Uh, Here's some research I did. The Holy Land is a region where earthquakes occur frequently. By one means or another, big earthquakes have been documented in the Holy Land for a period exceeding 4,000 years. 
Many are known from history and literature, especially in the Bible. Holy Land earthquakes are also evidenced from archaeological excavations. No other region of the earth has had such a long and well-documented chronology of big earthquakes. Recently, geologists have investigated the 4,000-year chronology of earthquake disturbances within the uppermost 19 feet of laminate sediment of the Dead Sea. Hypersaline waters preserve seasonally laminated sediment because organisms cannot live or burrow in the bed of the lake. So here's the thing about the Dead Sea. It's salty. In fact, it's seven times saltier than the ocean. So within it, all the fish who come down the Jordan River, they die. Too salty. There's not the typical bugs and worms and varmints that live in the mud. And so there's sediment and sand as it comes into the Dead Sea. It just falls and settles. It's not typically disturbed. And over time... These sediment layers are like a time chart because when there's earthquakes, it shakes that up and it disturbs it, the idea. <clears throat> okay, a sketch of sediment core from the west side of the Dead Sea appears in figure one. I'll have a picture here in just a minute. The sketch shows the depths of the mixed layers within the laminate sediment sequence. When, when sand and debris falls in, it just settles, and they call this a laminate. Two deeper mixed layers in the Dead Sea are, are datable from historical archaeology and geological associations with faulting. The earthquakes of 31 B.C., evidently uh, they call this the Qumran earthquake, uh, was a really huge earthquake. And the earlier 750 B.C., uh, they from about the time of Amos. Other earthquakes are represented in the Dead Sea sediment core with dates approximated by assuming a steady rate of sedimentation. So it's scientific stuff, but basically sand and stuff settles in the Dead Sea at a very constant rate. And it's like a time chart. So I don't know how well you... I know you're setting back further, but from zero to five feet covers not quite uh, a thousand years of time. And so they can look at the constant or steady sediment where, where there was no earthquakes. That's these tan areas. When there was an earthquake, it stirs it all up. That sediment gets changed, and it's a very different-looking sediment. And if you go down here to ten feet... Well, we're back here real close to the time of Jesus. And so they know in 31 B.C. there was this Qumran earthquake. And you go up just a little and you're to 33 A.D., which was the earthquake described in the New Testament. I've got a little bit bigger chart. You can look at that there. So right here they have historical data to know this one is the Qumran earthquake. And just a few years before... Uh, or later would be how it would work, is the earthquake in the time of Jesus. Here's another little bit. The standard layers, how it standard does, and then you have earthquake. Standard layers, then you had a huge earthquake, is how that works. Dead Sea sediment can be seen above the southwestern shore of the modern Dead Sea near the fortress of Masada. 
And this sediment is a distinctive one-foot-thick mixed layer of sediment that is tied strongly to the Qumran earthquakes onshore ground ruptures. This is, I'm going the wrong way. That one right here. This was an enormous earthquake, 31 B.C. 13 inches above the 31 B.C. event is another distinctive mixed layer which indicates another earthquake less than one inch thick. The sedimentation rate puts this second earthquake about 65 years after the 31 B.C. earthquake. It seems that the crucifixion earthquake of 33 A.D. was magnitude 5.5 leaving direct physical evidence in a thin layer of disturbed sediment from the Dead Sea. Now, I bet you there's two or three of you going, what the, why does this make any difference? I get it. I understand. Here's what I'm trying to point out. Science shows this to be. There was an earthquake in 33 AD. The Bible says that's true, and I know that's enough for you, but I want you to know something. Science backs it up. And we've got a chart in the Dead Sea. It, you can go and dig down, and this is what you're going to find. A record of all the earthquakes. And there were an earthquake in 33 AD, just as plain as day. Now, if you want to go and look at all this, I've got the documentation. Because I'm not a science. I didn't do this research. Y'all know that. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now I want you to notice verse 52, and the graves were opened. It's a big earthquake. Because some of these big stones in the cemetery were thrown around. Some of those tombs were opened. The rocks fractured. Maybe a little bit of a rock slide. Those graves, those people could walk by and look inside and there's a dead body. Now I want you to get that in your mind. This is Friday. It's Friday. And this earthquake happens when Jesus died. Friday and Saturday... They could walk along looking to see those dead bodies. Now I'm going to go, we're going to leave this, we're going to come back to Matthew 27, Matthew 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, it's Sunday, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. I want to tell you, this is earthquake number two. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. Now, this earthquake number two. Now, why is this significant? Okay. So, we read books, and almost all of our books are chronological order. The Bible's not always that way. 
Luke is probably the most chronological of any of the New Testament books, especially the Gospels. Luke was a doctor, and he's pretty chronological. Matthew, not exactly. Sometimes Matthew, as he wrote, he followed chronologically some things, and then he'd get off on a theme, and that's what he does in Matthew. Matthew gets to following a theme, and I want to go back and show you this. Jesus cried with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Behold, the veil of the temple rent in twain from the top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent, and the graves were opened. That's Friday. Now, that's Sunday. Right here, you see, there was a great earthquake. And Jesus rose from the dead. The great event of all time. I'm going to go back. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And came out of the graves after his resurrection. So when Jesus was resurrected, those bodies that were in those graves, those dead people that they were able to look in there and see on Friday and Saturday, they arose. They lived. Came out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared to many. These folks been dead? Who knows how long? Verse 54, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquakes and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. God did this. I want to tell you something. When Jesus died, the ground shook. As Jesus entered Hades on Friday, I'll tell you, a Sunday was coming. And when he came out of the ground on Sunday, raised to new life, he threw the gates of hell off their hinges. The earth quaked. And not just Jesus arose, the dead that were there arose. All those people saw those dead bodies and witnessed the great resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean for you and I? I think there's a scripture that should help us to understand exactly what these things mean. First Timothy chapter 6 beginning in verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things. And before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. That thou keep this commandment without spot. Unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his time he shall sow, who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. I will tell you, if God did this for him at his birth, If God did this for him at his death and his resurrection, God will certainly bring him back to us. And someday we'll stand before God. Someday you'll stand resurrected to give an answer.
for your life. Give an answer for your eternity. And you'll hear enter in or you'll he'll depart from me. The evidence is there. It's overwhelming. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about what you have heard, email us at cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook at facebook.com backslash wheelerareacfc.com.